Thank you, Dustin, and thank you to the worship ministry team this morning. You guys have been a blessing to us. The charge a little bit earlier for you was to grab a bracelet to pray for VBS. I want to encourage you in that direction. Also, I want you to pray for two or three other things. Add these to your list. Uh, in a few hours, the team from our church that's been serving to help establish a church plant in Kenya will be heading home. So they arrive on Tuesday. They have a long journey back, so we want to pray for safe travels and good health for them. It's been a really productive trip, so we're grateful for that. Also, Mark's return is the beginning of this week. He gets back uh, tomorrow. He uh, had some ministry opportunities that he was able to uh, participate in in Germany and then has stuck around in Europe and seen a few more things that he hasn't been able to see since he's over there. Uh, and then the other thing that I'd love for you to be just consistently praying about uh, we haven't talked about Chris and Sarah McLaughlin lately. Uh, they're likely to return to Edmond sometime in mid to late July. Uh, so we want to continue to pray for them. Chris is one of our staff guys uh, who was in a rollover accident earlier this spring. He's paralyzed from the chest down uh, currently. We've been praying for healing for him. Uh, he's at Craig Hospital in Denver. And his release to come home will be a little bit later this summer. But just continue to pray for uh, the McLaughlins, Chris and Sarah, and then their three kids uh, as well. As you well know, Thursday, June 6th, was the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. All week it has been quite moving to watch the many tributes that have been put together for the 160,000 Allied troops that landed on the French beaches there for the mission that was officially named Operation Overlord. Mark and Cheryl on Wednesday were able to visit Normandy and go to Omaha Beach and Utah Beach and see some of the artifacts and the sites that are still in place there. General Dwight D. Eisenhower famously said of the mission, we will accept nothing less than full victory, which was why over 5,000 ships and 13,000 aircraft were deployed for this massive invasion. By the end of the day, on June 6th, 9,000 Allied troops had been killed. But as I'm sure you were reminded of this week, by the end of August, the Allies had taken back the city of Paris, and in less than a year, on midnight, May 8th, 1945, Germany had surrendered and the European victory was accomplished. Right after D-Day, war correspondent Ernie Pyle he described the beaches of Normandy this way. He wrote, On the beach itself were all kinds of wrecked vehicles. There were tanks that had only just made the beach before being knocked out. There were jeeps that had burned to a dull gray. There were big derricks on caterpillar treads that didn't quite make it. There were LCTs turned completely upside down. Pyle concluded that there was wreckage on the beach sufficient for a small war. But it was Pyle's final analysis that told the full story. He wrote, we could afford it. And the reason we could do so, he explained, was that we had our toehold, and coming behind us, there were such enormous replacements for this wreckage on the beach that you could hardly conceive of their sum total. And the explanation for this was because a few years earlier, America had been mobilized for war. Maury Klein, he's a historian, and in his book, A Call to Arms, he said it this way, 
The colossal scale of World War II required a mobilization effort greater than anything attempted in all of the world's history. The United States had to fight a war across two oceans and three continents, and to do so, it had to build and equip a military that was all but non-existent before the war began. Never in the nation's history did it have to create, outfit, transport, and supply huge armies, navies, and air corps on so many distant and disparate fronts. He went on to write, The Axis powers, they might have fielded better trained soldiers, better weapons, better tanks and aircraft, but they could not match the American productivity. America buried its enemies in aircraft, ships, tanks, and guns. In this sense, American industry and American workers won World War II. The scale of the effort was titanic, and the result, historic. Stirring words there, I think. But a call to arms is what we're talking about. Without it, the war could not have been won. That was true of the American liberation of Europe. It's true of the Christian life. That's what we're talking about this morning, a Christian call to arms. We're continuing in our study of 1 Peter. It's a study we've titled Still Standing, and today we get into chapter 4. We're finally nearing the end of our study of this book. We'll conclude it later this summer, but today we're in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. Turn there if you're not there already. And as I talk about warfare. I'm really, I'm not just trying to be dramatic. You and I cannot live the victorious Christian life with a peacetime mentality. we, We can't chill out and lay back and be cool about this thing called the Christian life because there is a war going on. Now, peace is coming. Praise God for that. But right now, a war is raging, and so I have to understand how God has called me to fight and defend myself as I live with this sin battle that's going on inside of me. I I must understand how I need to think about the, the myriad of temptations and the outside enemies that are constantly assaulting me and trying to take me down. And so let's read this together and find out what some of these things may be. Beginning in verse 4, or excuse me, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, I'll read through verse 6. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts today. The main point of the text is there in verse 1, which starts 
with therefore. And as you know, when we see a therefore in Scripture, we should always ask, what is there for? And like most therefores in Scripture, this one refers back to the previous thought or the previous section of text. Therefore, since Christ suffered. That's what the previous section of chapter 3 was about. It was about suffering. Christ suffered, and we are to arm ourselves with that same way of thinking, or that same purpose, or that same attitude, as some of your versions might say, that Christ had. So according to this text, attitudes and and thoughts and, and purposes arm us to fight the war that we find ourselves in. They protect us and help us achieve victories. And the particular purpose Peter has in mind for the Christian is the purpose to suffer if God should will it for the sake of righteousness. There's a tension here that suffering well is the victory. It doesn't seem to make sense to us that suffering is the victory. But remember, for most of time, in most places... Christians found themselves in places of profound suffering. Maybe that's not so true in America in the last 50 years. But it's true in most places throughout church history that Christians were in suffering. And and it's still true around the world that Christians are in places of suffering. And so suffering well is the victory. If you choose that purpose for your thinking, then you are armed That's what this text and this sermon are for, to help you be well-armed and to be ready when the struggle with sin and suffering comes your way. So there are five encouragement, we could call them five pieces of armor for the Christian to put on. The first is a proper attitude about suffering. Our first encouragement is to freely subject our bodies to suffering for the sake of righteousness to even choose suffering if necessary. Why do I say it that way? Because that is what Christ, that is what our Savior did. Suffering did not merely happen to him. He chose it. Consider John 10, verse 18, where Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, by my own choosing. If we take seriously the command of Jesus when he told his disciples to take up his cross and follow him, then our preparation for suffering, it makes perfect, consistent sense. In his book, 100 Prison Meditations, Pastor Richard Wormbrand, who spent 14 years in prison in Romania, his crime was simply being an evangelical pastor, In his book, he wrote, I have accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of a partnership with Jesus which brings gladness in tribulations, which makes Christians, listen to this, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. Ponder that. Ponder this, because this fact is the centerpiece of our armor. This fact that Jesus, 
the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the savior of the world, the, the, the perfectly innocent one, the son of God, he chose suffering as his earthly vocation and called us to take up his cross and follow in his way. And in so doing, we find real and everlasting life. Our purpose is to suffer with him. So like a soldier preparing for battle, a soldier putting on a piece of armor or a helmet, believers should arm themselves for suffering. In fact, following Christ is a choice to suffer for righteousness. The world hates righteousness. Therefore, the world will hate your commitment to righteousness. And because of that, you must arm yourself to suffer. That's what it means to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Second piece of armor. Second piece of armor, a desire for the will of God. And before we talk about the second piece in verse 2, I have to address the second half of verse 1. Verse 1b, where it says, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I'm not completely sure, but I believe what ceased from sin means is that if you trust God to the extent that you are willing to suffer for doing what is right, then you are a person who has made a decisive break with sin. In other words, choose suffering because if you don't, you will choose sin. And if you do choose suffering, you will prove that your bondage to sin, it's been broken. So, so get the thought and the purpose in your head that, that Christ, he is worth suffering for. Arm yourself with that. Live out that conviction. And when the choice comes between suffering and sin, you'll choose suffering and not sin. And in that suffering, sin is going to be defeated. Now this is not, this, this text here, this verse, this section of verse 1, is not talking about sinless perfection. It's not what's being taught here. Suffering doesn't make you absolutely sinless in this life. You're, you're, this week should bear that out for you. Suffering for righteousness, what it does signify is a clean break with the past of sin. Sin no longer rules and reigns over you. To embrace this attitude, arming yourself with it, it sets you free from the lie that joy and glory come from following your own desires and the desires of the world around you. That's what's going on here. That's what the second half of verse 1 is saying. Now, some of you are older than me, so what I'm about to reference might not connect with you at all. And some of you are quite a bit younger, and you won't get it because the only games you play are on screens. But if you were born in the 1970s, you're going to know what I'm talking about when I talk about MASH. Now, not the television show with Alan Alda, but the game MASH. There are a couple of different ways you could play it. The concept was basically the same. And for those of you still wondering, MASH was a game that helped you determine the different aspects of your future life. And it went by this acronym MASH. And help me out, MASH stood for mansion, apartment, shack, house. Very good. Did much better than the first service. And according to the game, one of those four places is where you're going to be living. 
And you also had four options for a spouse. It could be a girl from your middle school, or it could be a supermodel, or it might be a mix of both. That's kind of the way I liked it. <laughs> and then you had options for your car, usually arranged between a Ford Pinto and maybe a Lamborghini. And then you had four options for a job. And you would pick a number, and someone would help you through these categories. Sometimes they would use this sort of folded origami device that, in my experience, only girls could actually make. <laughs> I, I never knew a guy with the patience or the dexterity to actually put one of these contraptions together. Guys would just use the spiral method. Remember that one? Yeah? And anyway, you, you work through the four categories, and, and the game revealed the, the future plan for your life. So show of hands, how many of you have played MASH? All right, most of you, great. And if you've played it, you know that the trouble with the game is that it was just so inconsistent. You could be playing in the NFL, married to Christy Brinkley, driving a DeLorean, but living in a shack. <laughs> it just didn't add up. And I bring up that somewhat silly childhood game to point out that, that we play a similar game with the will of God. And what I mean is we reduce our thinking on the will of God to the material decisions of life. What's God's will for the house that we buy? What's God's will for the car that we buy? Do we eat at Arby's or Wendy's? Do we go to Disneyland or Disney World? Some of you have even broken up with a boyfriend you didn't like by using you know, the excuse of God's will. But here in this text, the will of God is much bigger than our romantic or materialistic categories. God's will in 1 Peter 4 is the difference between living for human passions or living for the will of God. The contrast is implied. Living for the will of God is a distinct break with living for human passions. Look again at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In the flesh means your life in your present physical body. So the rest of the time you are alive, you no longer live for you. Again, the point is not that Peter's readers will never have another evil desire if they embrace suffering. His point is that is that there is this ideological shift that takes place in the heart when suffering for righteousness is embraced and even pursued. And the bottom line of the verse is this, that you can choose your own will or God's will as the determinative compass for your life. Your will or God's will, which one's going to lead you? And those who have embraced and armed themselves to suffer, they're adopting the attitude of Jesus that God's will is the compass by which they're going to navigate their lives. Because after all, what did Jesus say to God the Father when, when his decisive moment of suffering was at hand? What did he say there in the garden as he prayed intensely, sweating as if drops of blood? He prayed, not my will, but thine be done. Third way to arm yourself is resolving that past sins are enough. Verse 3, for the time that has passed suffices. It's enough. The time in the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless 
idolatries. That's quite a list. Don't worry, moms and dads. I'm not going to unpack every one of those words this morning. But this is a simple and remarkable statement. The, the, the time already passed is sufficient for sin. It's enough. Don't do it anymore. Suffer if you must, but don't do any more of the sin that you used to do. Arm yourself with this thought that any amount of past sinning is enough. Any amount. If you sinned a little before you were converted, that's enough. If you sinned a lot and for many years before your conversion, that's enough. You can never sin so little that you could say, I just need a little bit more time to sin. You know, you maybe have heard people say, you know, I know I need to get right with God. I know I need to, you know, stop doing what I'm doing, but I just need a little more time. I just need a little more time for me, a little bit more time for my will, for my passions. Peter says, arm yourself with this thought, the time that you've spent sinning is sufficient. The story is told of Augustine. He's the fourth century theologian who was the bishop of Hippo in North Africa. And Augustine, after he confessed faith in Jesus Christ, he ran into a former mistress on the street. And immediately upon recognizing her, Augustine quickly reversed course and began swiftly moving in the opposite direction. The woman, surprised by seeing Augustine and equally surprised at his turning the other way, she cried out, Augustine, it is I. Augustine, it is I. Augustine, continuing to move away from her, he replied, yes, but it is not I. He had made a break with sin. The sin of his past was sufficient. That's what Peter is saying to do. Make the break. Choose the will of God. And then suffer for it if you must. And if you're wondering exactly what kind of suffering I'm talking about as I keep using that word, the specific suffering Peter has in mind here is mentioned in verse 4. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation or join them in their debauchery. And it says they malign you. There it is. They malign you. They slander you. They, they make you look like a fool. You know, it is, it is hard to be the salmon swimming upstream. It's hard to live differently. Parents, it, it's hard for your children in school to stand for what is right when it seems like everybody else is doing the opposite. It's hard for a man in business not to be a part of the, of the coarse joking that he knows is wrong, or even worse, play a role in the shady business deal that brings higher profit. It's not easy to stand on principle when everyone else is compromising. It's hard not to enter into conversations, not to want to be acceptant, accepted, but then I know in order to do that, I have to give myself to things that I, I just can't give myself to. These are things that I've made a break from. These are things contrary to the will of God. And so many of you, every day, you're, you're feeling that pressure to, to move in a direction that you know you shouldn't move. Because not only is it hard to stand alone, but often when you do that, you are exposing yourself to misunderstanding 
into mockery, into malignment, and that hurts. God has wired us as, as social beings. It, it hurts to be a social outcast, and there are few things that affect your social standing more than being a faithful Christian. Justin Martyr, he lived in the second century. He was a Christian philosopher, an apologist. He was beheaded in what's referred to as the fourth Roman persecution of the church because he would not deny his faith by sacrificing to the idols of Rome. And he wrote this. He said, We who formerly delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and share with everyone who is in need. We who hated and destroyed one another on account of our different customs and would not even live with men of a different race now, since the coming of Christ, live on excellent terms with them and pray for our enemies and, in, and endeavor to persuade those who hate us unjustly to conform to the good precepts of Christ. To that end, that they may become partakers with us of the same joyful hope of a reward from God, the ruler of all. Not much has changed. Justin Martyr was maligned and, and finally killed because he resolved his past sinning to be enough and laid hold of the will of God, which was this kind of obedient life. Another ancient document, the Epistle to Diognetus, it's a second century letter, it's a brief, a brief work of, of Christian apologetics. In the fifth section of the letter, the author talks about what sets Christians apart from other people in the Roman world. I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he says Christians are peculiar he admits to, to be sure they live with everyone else, and in many ways they live like everyone else. They work in the same kinds of jobs. They wear the same kinds of clothes. But he says they're also different in significant ways. They are sexually chaste. They don't kill unwanted children. They're generous and committed to sharing both within their churches and with people outside those churches. And above all, they refuse to worship the Roman gods. For these differences, they are hated and hate it all the more. Listen to this. The kinder they are, the more they are maligned. And here's one more thing he writes that sets the Christians apart. When they are attacked, when they are persecuted, they don't reply in kind. Others say to the Christians, you are my enemy. Christians say to the others, you are my neighbor. Were they wrong to live this way? Were they being you know, naive Absolutely not. The best scholarly estimates we have suggest the following, that in 40 A.D., less than a decade after the death and resurrection of Christ, there were probably around 1,000 Christians. In 100 A.D., probably around 10,000. In 200 A.D., around 200,000. By 300 A.D., there were around 6 million Christians. So just note that the stratospheric growth, and note how that occurs before Constantine, but before the state endorsed Christianity and then propagated it. All of this growth actually happened within seasons of intermittent persecution. Theologian Brad East, he said, the martyrs were not doormats. 
And martyrdom is not despair or acquiescence before evil or persecution. Listen to this. He said, it is the power of the cross made manifest in the world. Better to embrace the power of the cross like Jesus did, if that is God's will, than to compromise. The time you've spent sinning is sufficient. It's enough. If you, have not re- if you have not resolved that and put on that piece of armor, you will not be ready. You will not stand up when you are maligned. Fourth, arm yourself with the reality of coming judgment. Look at verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge. Now we believe that, that we serve a a holy God who is the very definition of righteousness and justice. And because of who God is, what we believe is that this world is marching toward justice. If we believe God is just, then we believe every ounce of justice will be served. There will be a day when your faith and your suffering and your obedience it's going to be vindicated by his justice. And that is the day when the mocker and the maligner and the persecutor, they're going to be defeated and judged forever. It's just as those who who mocked Noah, when, when he preached righteousness, they were dealt with. So also would those who who were maligning Christians in, in the first century and in every century after that, they are going to ultimately be dealt, dealt with. As Noah and his family, as they were placed in the ark, Christians, they are placed into Christ, and they can rest in that truth. As judgment rages around, they are hidden in their Savior. That was bad news for the maligners, but it is comforting news for these persecuted Christians, for us who, who know that the righteous judge is going to make all things right. I can't help but remember a couple of verses back in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, as, as this letter continues to bump into this idea of suffering, Peter writes about Jesus. In verse 22 of, verse, of, chapter, of chapter 2, he says, He committed no sin, neither was de- deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Folks, there may very well be moments in your life when that truth is all you have. When the sure promise that wrong is going to be dealt with, that evil will be defeated, that sin is going to die, and that righteousness and truth and justice are going to be the things that reign forever and ever and ever. There may come a moment when that's, that's all you have and that's all you need to have. And unless we think that death might rescue a person from judgment, Peter says, he, God, is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's there's no escape. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed a man once to die and then judgment. Evil deeds may be long forgotten. Death may come after a comfortable life with, with, with sin. But then, 
comes judgment before the all-knowing, all-remembering, righteous God. And so when you suffer wrongly in this life, when you feel that someone gets away with murder, what can you do? You can actually leave it in the hands of God because he will judge justly the living and the dead. Arm yourself with that assurance that it is better to suffer for doing right and leave the judgment to God. This is why we can bless those who, who, who persecute us, why we can love those who malign us. We don't, we don't have to strike back and retaliate. We can even respond in generosity and love because we know that God himself, he's the one who ultimately upholds justice. Who am I to pay back or avenge when I know that that's better left to God? The reality of judgment is a piece of armor. The final way to arm yourself from this text is the hope of the gospel. In all of this, it's very important to understand the hope of the gospel, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Again, a bit more confusing language here, but here's how best to translate what Peter has written. The gospel was preached to those who have since died or, or, or who are now physically dead. And those who are physically dead now, these Christians, they are actually alive by the Spirit of God. And so he's saying, all of us still face the result of the sin of Adam, which is what? Physical death. All of us will physically die, but the hope of the gospel is this, that there is life on the other side of that. We really do believe in eternal life. We do not believe that this is all there is. And probably one of the ways that unbelievers were maligning the Christians in the first century was by saying something like, you say you have such good news. You say you escape judgment. You say your God is great and saves you and gives you joy. Well, all we've got to say is you're missing a lot of parties and you die just like everybody else. So if you die and go to the worms and we die and go to the worms, well, we, see, you know, we say eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we all die. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if only in this life we have Christ, then we are to be pitied. You see, this life that we've been called to, this life where we embrace God's will and even embrace, embrace suffering if he so wills it, it makes no sense without eternity. And so we, therefore, hold with both hands the gospel promise of eternal life, that Jesus Christ came, he lived a perfect life, he shed his blood for our sins, he rose again, he conquered death so that, so that he may gift us with this thing that is impossible, it seems, to even grasp with our finite minds, eternal life, life that lasts forever. So in that moment when Maybe you're being mocked in that moment when you're, when you're struggling with severe temptation, when you're being misunderstood, in that moment when you've suffered in ways that, that you're just tired of suffering. You say to yourself, 
this is not all there is. This is not all there is. Eternity is sure and true and real, and I will live beyond here forever and ever and ever and ever. Are you thinking this way? Are you thinking this way? And not just this morning as the B-team preacher at church is reminding you of these things. But is this the way you think in the mundane moments of everyday life in the fallen world where we live? The word from the Lord for us this morning is arm yourself with the purpose to suffer for righteousness' sake. The pieces in this armor, the pieces that support us and encourage us and sustain us are these, the attitude of Christ who led the way in suffering. Our Savior suffered, we follow him. The second piece, a desire for God's will, will. not human passions, but God's will. The third piece, a resolve that says any amount of past sinning is sufficient. It's enough. I'm not living there anymore. Piece four, the reality of God's just judgment. And then finally, piece five, the hope of the gospel, that those of us who embrace the gospel, we are going to triumph over death and suffering. Whether you're nine or 90, what you need to know is that there is life beyond this life, an eternal life, heaven, life with God, bliss. It can be yours if you transfer your trust from whatever it is you're putting your trust in, your own righteousness, maybe it's money, maybe it's some other kind of security, I don't know, but you transfer it from there to Jesus Christ. And you'll know where you'll spend your eternity. The mortality rate is flat. One out of one people die. If the Lord doesn't come, one out of one people die, and there's an eternity beyond us. And the only way to be sure of what that eternity, eternity contains is if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning and we think about the words of this text, um, it's not something that hits us softly. It kind of hits us hard to think about suffering for the sake of righteousness. None of us, none of us want to suffer. But Lord, as we think about who you are and, and how you came to save us and sending your son, Lord, we look to Christ. He is our suffering sovereign. And we can follow in his way. We can put behind our old passions and we can run toward the will of God. And we can know with whatever happens that this existence of ours here is but a blip when it comes to our eternity. So Lord, I pray that that what we experience here, God, is vindicated by what ultimately we experience there when we live with you. Father, thank you for this time together, for this place and this people. I pray that we've been encouraged through our worship, through this word, and now through one another. Be with us as we spend time together this morning and be with us as we leave here on mission for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.